Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Well, as we continue to move forward in the new year, um, and as by God's grace more and more folks are getting vaccinated both in our church and our community, uh, we're starting to re-engage with some ministry. I heard the Bible study yesterday morning went really well, so thanks to Morgan for leading that and for those of you that participated. Um, next Sunday, we're going to continue to expand our youth, uh, our kids' ministry during Sunday. So if you have elementary age kids, we'll be opening up those classes again starting next week. Uh, so if you've not been a part of our church before, typically the way that works is you'll check your kids in uh, for those uh, all ages. We'll, we'll get checked in. Zero to five can go right in, uh, but we uh, think it's really important that our elementary kids continue to worship with their parents, their families. And so We'll invite the, those kind of first through sixth graders to, to still come in here, and then we'll, at this time, typically dismiss them. So that'll be starting next week if you have elementary age kids. One more commercial. Um, the city reached out to us uh, last month, and they've been um, having a hard time finding help to distribute food to low-income seniors that live just up the hill from us at Evergreen Place. And so if you are uh, interested in, in serving once a month on Thursday from about 11.30 to 1, you're literally just taking a food box, putting it on a doorstep and ringing a doorbell. Um, that'll be happening the first Thursday of every month, which if you're familiar with the change of the month, it would be this Thursday. So if you're interested in that, uh, let us know. Alex, who's doing the sound today, is coordinating those efforts. You can either email us or do a connection card as well. All right, commercial's over. Uh, when I was a kid... One of the, my favorite stories that just kind of captured uh, a young Andrew's heart was the story of Robin Hood. I think I was first introduced it uh, through, through an older movie uh, starring Errol Flynn. So if anybody watched the, the, the older Robin Hood, my, my dad showed me that. Uh, then I read a couple different versions of the story in book form. And then in, I think it was 1990 or 91, uh, there was a remake of Robin Hood, which I was really excited about, starring Kevin Costner. And if you know the story of Robin Hood, uh, you know there's, a, there's an evil sheriff, the sheriff of Nottingham, right, which takes taxes from people and, and is very corrupt. There's, a, there's an evil ruler uh, that has, has taken the throne because King Henry, uh, I think it's, or King Richard, the lion-hearted, is, is off to war. And then there's this, uh, this rebel, Robin Hood, right, who steals from the rich to give to the poor. And at, the, at the very end of the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood, uh, the, the king returns, and after all these, this rebellion and kind of, uh, kind of turmoil that Robin Hood and his men have created, trying to, trying to push back against corrupt leadership, uh, he's wondering, Robin Hood's wondering, oh man, when the king returns, how will he view me? And as the, as the movie ends, if you're familiar with this, uh, this version of it, uh, the king returns and he, he, he finds favor with Robin and his men. And uh, essentially, there's this sense that all is going to be well again in the kingdom uh, now that the king is back. Evil is going to be overturned and things are going to be set right. If you've been with us in the last few weeks, we're looking at this statement that Jesus made uh, from the very beginning of his ministry where he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so later on, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, us, this is relevant to us as well. He says to pray in this way, to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. This, this is the announcement of something radical is about to change in the world. And this is a prayer of, of restoration. Uh, as we know the, the biblical narrative, uh, things have been broken for a long time in the world. So it's a, it's a prayer of restoration, bringing things back to order. It's a, it's a prayer of revolution uh, against the sin that has been ruling and reigning unchecked. And it's also, for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, you can't pray this prayer unless your heart is aligned with God. And so it's a prayer of allegiance as well. And so church family, this is the prayer that we need to pray. It's a both right now and still to come type of prayer. And so this morning as we continue in our series uh, kingdom come. That's my heart, that we would see clearly our place in the story of God's redemption and of his reconciliation and of his restoration. So let's pray to that end this morning. Father, we need to know who we are in your story. We need to know what you think of us. Are we on purpose or are we an accident? Do these deficiencies mean something or do they not mean something? Do these strengths are they for a, a cause or a greater purpose, or are they just a coincidence? Lord, we need to know from you who we are, why we were made, what our identity is, what role we have to play in our short time here on this earth. And Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would heal our hearts where we have taken things on ourselves that are not meant to be part of our identity. Lord, that you would realign us with your truth. Father, you would speak life and vision to us and restore joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we, we continue in our series this morning, we're going to look uh, inward now. We, we've been looking the last few weeks at how Jesus describes his kingdom from Matthew chapter 13. This morning we're going to look inward at how God's kingdom, how this message and ministry of Jesus affects our identity. Because being a part of the kingdom of God means that our lives will look different as they reflect the values and culture of the kingdom. So let me ask a, a few questions just to get an idea, because you're all wearing masks. I don't even know who's here right now. How many of you in this room did not grow up in the Seattle area, the greater Puget Sound? Just raise your hand here. Okay, so maybe a third, a third or a little more. Okay, let me ask another question. How many of you in this room did not grow up in America? A few of you aren't raising your hands. Okay, so we got probably eight or ten or so, maybe more. Gideon, I know you were born here in America. <laughs> so for those of you that were born uh, outside of the country, and you have friends and family that are still living in that country, how many of them now say when they talk to you, interact with you, that you sound American? It, you ever get that? Yeah, okay, a few of you, yeah, raising your hands, you sound American. Uh, when I moved from California to Hawaii, I lived in Hawaii for four years, uh, Hawaii was a very different culture than where I grew up. It's America, it's one of the, the 50 states 
But the culture of the islands is vastly different than the culture of the mainland. Do you ever use the mainland? In, no, you don't, right? Because you didn't grow up on an island. But everybody in Hawaii calls where we live the mainland. And there's, they look at us differently. And when we go there, we go, huh, something's different here. Well, one of the, the, the things I realized when I moved to Hawaii is that dressing like I'm dressing right now doesn't make sense. When you live in Hawaii, the standard attire is shorts, a t-shirt, if you're dressing up, an aloha shirt, and flip-flops, or as they call them in Hawaii, slippers. And so it took me a, a few months of living in Hawaii to realize that was not only the most comfortable way to dress, but that was just the normal way to dress. And so it didn't take long before wherever I went, that's how I was dressing. Whether it was church, a wedding, uh, or hanging out at the beach, pretty much looked the same no matter, matter where I went. The longer I lived in Hawaii, the more I started to pick up on the customs of, of Hawaii. I started doing the shaka, right? I used to, I'd say, I'd say uh, mahalo and aloha. I started using the language. The more you're a part of a culture, the more you start to kind of assimilate to that culture. You start to pick up its values and its traditions. Life in the islands slows way down. <laughs> I remember getting my... Uh, renewing my driver's license when I lived in Hawaii, and I had to get a Hawaiian driver's license. And I came to the stoplight, and I'd been driving for a while at this point. Came to the stop sign, and the, the guy that was evaluating my, my driving was sitting next to me. And I started to kind of pull away casually with one hand on the steering wheel. And he knew that I had moved from California, and he goes, Oh, bro, I don't know how they do things in California, but you've got to have both hands on the steering wheel when you drive in Hawaii. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay, right? Like, I. I, I had to learn the ways of the islands. And so as we think about our identity as people, there are different things that have shaped us as we've grown, depending on the culture that you grew up in. And not just culture as in somewhere outside of America, but even family cultures, right, are different. Some of you, uh, every meal at your house, you sit around the dinner table, right? We're all going to have family dinner. Some of you are moving in 100 different directions or you're watching TV. Like every family has a different culture. And those things shape kind of who we are and how we interpret the world. So let me ask you this. If somebody were to, to say, what makes you, you? Like share five things right now that make you who you are. What does your mind go to? So he says, who are you? Aaron, Chuck. Lydia, Laval, who are you? What makes you you? What if somebody said, what is the truest thing about you? So maybe even as you were thinking, you're like thinking of, you know, where you grew up, what sports team you like, what you do for work, how many kids were in your family. Like you think of all those things, right? But if somebody says, what's the truest thing about you? What would you respond? Now, if we're honest, when we think about ourselves, some things we embrace about who we are. And some things we avoid. Many of us feel this every morning, right? When we get up and we're getting ready to go out and we look at the mirror. We go, man, I'm so good looking. <laughs> that's not me. I'm sure that's you. That's what I'm saying. Many of us, though, we go, yeah, I just want to look at this side of my face because that's the good side, right? Like, some things about us we embrace, some things we avoid. 
Now, it's been said that our identity is what is identical about us in every situation, right? It doesn't change no matter who you're hanging out with. You, you see that connection, right? Identity, identical. But that doesn't actually help much, right? Because we're composite people. We're, we're bundles of competing desires and even identities that we take on. In one case, we want to be educated thinkers. We want to be informed on what's going on in the world. We want to have an answer. We want to know how things work. And on the other case, man, we love reality TV. <laughs> right? <laughs> we just want to sit down and veg out. So who are we? How do we define that? What about our culture? What does our culture say identity is? Our, our culture oftentimes kind of breaks identity into to three different components. What we do, what we have, and what we desire. What we do, think about that. What do we ask kids from a very early age? What do you want to be when you grow up? And so in doing that, we speak to them that that's who they are. What they do is their identity. The other piece is what we have. And so we, we gauge the value of our life and the significance of our life by the things that we acquire in life. Oh, I have a house. I have a car. I have two cars. Or I have no cars. I have no house. I have no place to live, right? We take these things on, what we have or don't have, as part of our identity. And then the other thing our culture speaks to us is the desires that we have are who we are. And so what does that say if you desire certain things in your relationships or in your life? Is that who you are? Is that really what our identity is? If this is what the culture at large says, and it is, just turn on the TV. All of the advertisements are designed to touch on one of these three things, your desires, what you have, what you do. If these are true about our identity, what happens when they're removed? Or when they change, does that mean we aren't who we thought we were? If my identity is based on my occupation, what happens when I lose my job? We see this uh, very poignantly with uh, professional athletes, especially NFL players, where their entire life they've been working to be the best football player they can be. And they retire at the ripe old age of 35. 35! And they look at their life ahead of them, and everything that their life had been built on previously is done. And they're a wreck. Is this really who I am? If my identity is based on what I own, then what happens when I lose what I own? Maybe a fire takes all your possessions. Maybe an economic downturn takes all your stocks. All of a sudden, who am I? What, what is my life built on? If my identity is based on my desires, does that mean every desire is just innate and okay? What about wrong desires? Is that, do those things really dictate who I am? If I have evil thoughts and impure thoughts, does that dictate my identity? So even here, things change. If this is what our identity is, what we have, what we do, what we desire, then it's fluid, right? And changing, and it's uncertain, and, and it could lead us to not knowing who we are at all. 
C.S. Lewis says, do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. The, to really know who we are as humans is, for many, a lifelong journey, a lifelong desire. And as Christians, we know to really understand our identity, we have to go back to the source. We have to go back to the beginning of our life and of our very existence. And so as citizens of the kingdom, our identity is rooted in the garden. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. It's the very first book of the Bible, so even if you don't know Scripture well, just turn there. Very first book, very first chapter, the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Now, we're going to read this together, but as we read it, I want you to think about if this was the very first time you're reading this. Maybe for some of you it is. But you are reading this specifically to find out who you are. Like, what's the, what's the origin of my life? What is my identity? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You hear that term, rule, right? See the kingdom connection? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Right from the very beginning of time, in the beginning of the Bible, we see something incredibly important about our identity. And this is not something that's displayed in advertising, social media campaigns, in reality TV, but it's absolutely essential to understand as the core of our identity. We see that we were created in the image of God. The, the Latin phrase for this is imago Dei. It's this theological understanding that we were made differently than all of creation. Now, when I was a kid and I heard this, I thought, so that means I look like God? That God looks like me? But that's not, not the type of image that's represented here. In, in both male and female, image in this context means likeness. It means representation. It means there is something about us that is very much in line with God and who he is. And so we see from the very beginning the, this description that like God, we are to rule. God gives humanity dominion over the earth. We're the top of the food chain, so to speak. That like God, we were made for relationship, relationship with others. We were made to have loving, committed, messy even relationships. Like God, we are given wisdom and creativity and love. We're designed to be righteous. So when we think of the image of God, it's these inherent qualities that were given to us that reflect who God is. It's this role in, 
his creation that reflects who God is. We were meant to be like him. Have you ever been in a, in a massive old church cathedral? We don't have a lot of them in America. Uh, maybe in some bigger cities or some East Coast cities. You walk into a cathedral, and the whole design of these ancient church architecture, I mean, from the Renaissance forward, was designed to make you go, wow. And in much of this, uh, this, these old church architecture, I mean, you're talking thousands of years of building, within the walls and within the, the orientation of the room, it was designed to draw you close to the glory, the majesty of who God is. And many of these church buildings, the stained glass would tell the important Bible stories because many people hundreds of years ago couldn't read. And so it was literally the first kid's Bible <laughs> illustrated for the people to see the story of the kingdom of God unfolding. And so as they would walk into these places of worship, everything was oriented around this to represent the glory of God. In some churches, they would, on, in their Sunday gatherings, they would unfold a piece of art as part of the worship service. And this piece of art is called a triptych. If you've ever done a science project, you know, as, as a kid, it's the trifold thing that you, you put up and it shows like how to make a volcano erupt with baking soda and vinegar, right? So this triptych would, would be placed on the stage and, and these people that would come from all over the countryside to, to, to gather to worship, for many it would be the first or really the only kind of beautiful display of art they would see that week. And it would be unfolded during the worship to display some image that represented the biblical story. So when we look at Genesis 1 again, we see a type of triptych, three parts. So God created mankind in his own image, part one. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So literally the crowning achievement of creation is man and woman. You in this room. And this is the image of God. This means that in your very existence, God has given you something that is incredibly and powerfully connected to who he is. Nothing else in creation can claim that. And so if this is who you are. You are the image of God. You are valuable beyond measure. This is the truest thing about you. I asked my, one of my kids this question. Uh, my daughter, Sophie, who's actually helping in kids' ministry today, she knew she wasn't going to be part of the message, so she said, what are you talking about tomorrow? I said, we're talking about identity. And I said, I asked her the question, if you were to say what is the most important thing about you, what would you say? And she began to do what many of us do. And I said, well, here's what the truest thing is about you. You were made in God's image. If we understand this, then it affects our view of everyone in Creation. Every person, no matter their disability, economic status, country of origin, every person was created in the image of God. And in thinking through this, uh, pastor and author Dave Lomas says this, thinking of the image of God in humanity. He says, every human endeavor to protect the vulnerable 
disenfranchised and oppressed, including the American Civil Rights Movement, women's suffrage, the movement to end abortion, and efforts towards clean water. All of these things have their roots in a belief that a human person is fundamentally valuable and consequently has certain rights that are wrong to deny. So the very concept of human rights is rooted in the image of God. And he goes on to say, similarly, every human movement toward repression, totalitarianism, from communism to Sharia law to fascism, grows in the soil of ignorance or intentional dehumanization that suggests certain humans matter more and are more valuable than other humans. But as Christians, we see that is not true. Every single person is made in the image of God. Uh, years ago, I used to be, uh, uh, one of my jobs was marketing, specifically digital marketing. And marketing is sales, right? You're trying to get people to see a product, to want the product, to purchase the product. And, and I did a lot of consulting for small businesses. And uh, one, there was one event that was going to be happening when we were living in Spokane. And it was one of those kind of fun runs for a cause. And honestly, I don't even remember what the cause was. But several, uh, several of us were asked to help assist with this, to just volunteer. And so I was sitting in a room with uh, different types of people that were in the same field as me, uh, all designed to, to advertise and market. And so we were kind of trying to help this organization uh, promote this fun run. And one of the statements that one of my fellow marketers at the table mentioned at the time was he said, you know, one of the things we found is for these types of events, it's a lot easier to get people to contribute and to participate if it's for a dog or a cat than it is for a human. Isn't that interesting? They said, you know, if it's like, if it's an adopt-a-dog drive, or if it's a get-your-cat-spayed-and-neutered, man, we can get people to show up by the droves. But if it's to help uh, children with disabilities, or man, that just kind of goes over people's heads. I thought, man, is that really the world that we've lived in? And it is. So as Christians, when we look at another human being, we are rooted in the biblical truth that everyone is made in the image of God. We don't just see stardust that somehow organized itself by accident. We see in every human, whether it's the homeless person that was literally sleeping on the steps here this week, or the CEO downtown, everyone is an image bearer of God. So here's the key to your identity. We see from the moment of creation, identity is not something you find, but it's something you receive. You receive it from God. He has given it to you from the moment your heart began to beat in your mother's womb. You're an image bearer of God. So there's... If this is the truest thing of us, what about the untrue things that we make more true than this, that define us? I remember going to a high school graduation when I was a youth pastor, and one of the kids of this student that was, or the brothers of this student that was graduating, he introduced himself to me as soon as I walked through his door. 
And he says, hi, my name's Charlie. And I said, hey, Charlie, how you doing, buddy? Nice to meet you. He goes, I have ADD. And I was so thrown off by his offering that right away. And, and I looked at him, and I, and I was processing why he would share that with somebody he doesn't, didn't even know. I realized for him, that was the most important thing about his identity. He had been told, you have this issue. That's who you are. The way you do everything, the way you act the way you are, it's because you have ADD. And so this young kid took that on himself as the truest thing about him. Not, I was made in the image of God, but I have this deficiency, I have this challenge, I have this need. I'm Charlie, I have ADD. The reality is, is while this was God's design, something happened rather quickly to God's most beautiful work of art. And Genesis records this as well. Satan, the deceiver, tried to offer to humanity a different identity. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here it is, right? Here's the, here's the, here's the, the lie that comes in right away. You will be like God if you eat it. Wait a second. Did we read Genesis 1 properly? You already are like God. What Satan did was he, he took a truth about this identity and he tried to then just turn it a little bit. Say, so you need to do this other thing. You will be like God. But you already are. Just after this, God meets Adam and Eve in the garden and he asks them, why are you hiding from me? And they say, we were ashamed because we were naked. This is what God says. Who told you that? Who spoke that thing over you and your identity and your life? This is a question I often ask people. Who told you that about you? that it would set your life on this course, that it was away from God and his original design, that they would speak this lesser thing. Yeah, it's true, but it's not the truest thing about you. And unfortunately, once it was unleashed, the effect of sin would be passed down to every human, and Satan would continue to lie to this day and to deceive, and instead of receiving their identity from God, they would try to find it. And we do this today. We try to find it in what we do, in what we desire, and what we have. Just this last week, a professor of mine in my global leadership class, he, he was sharing this story about how he was born in Korea, uh, South Korea. And he said, you know, in South Korea, they will do these evaluations, uh, kind of like IQ tests. And he said, me and my brother both took the same IQ test. And they said to my brother, you are very intelligent. You're going to go far. 
And they said to me, you're average. And he said, I thought that must be true. That must be who I am. I'm just average. He said some years later, when he was still very young, they, his family moved to the United States. And he said he was still learning the language. One of his new teachers in the public school system said to him, Joseph Kim, you're very sharp. He had to ask his friend what that meant. Because, you know, does that mean I'm sharp? Like, what is that? He said, no, it means you're intelligent. He thought, huh, I am? Now he's a professor. He's a, he has a doctorate. Isn't it amazing what people speak over us we can take on as the truest thing about us? We can let it affect the course of our life. And this has been something that Satan has been doing since the beginning. And I can guarantee he's done it to you. Through a family member, through a friend, through messaging, through the media. But here's the thing. We don't need other people to say things about us and our identity. The culture says it, says it in every commercial. Our politicians say it to us to maintain their power. And if we don't hear it there, then this sin curse that we are born under whispers it to us in the quiet of our own hearts as we stand in front of the mirror every morning. So even though the most true thing about our identity is that we were made in the image of God, we are clothed willingly with a lot of things that are less true about us and that won't bring us joy and they're unable to fulfill us in this life. We cover up our truest identity in what we do, in what we have, and in what we desire. And we say, this is who I am. But if the imago Dei isn't the center of our identity, then we will live a miserable and lost life. We'll wander around wondering what this life is about when those things slowly that we built our identity around begin to fade and crumble. So this is where the good news of the kingdom comes in. Here's where we see Jesus restoring our identity. John's gospel account opens up with a very poetic description of the identity of Jesus. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on, he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So here is humanity made in the image of God, but sin has so clouded our understanding that we are clinging to a whole bunch of things that are less true about us or even completely untrue. Things that keep us from seeing the truest thing. And so God decides to get as close to us as he has since Genesis and enter into humanity. This is the incarnation. And this is where his kingdom starts to break in. And a huge part of Jesus' ministry involves stripping away both the outright lies about who you are and also the less true things about us. And so this old man named Nicodemus, who was a religious Pharisee, he comes to Jesus and he's trying to figure out how he can, can work his way into God's favor. And Jesus says, hey, you need to be born again. You need to start over with your identity. You didn't know who God made you to be. This other man named Zacchaeus, he was like the sheriff of Nottingham. 
right? He was a tax collector. Nobody liked him. Nobody likes tax collectors, especially in his day. But I don't, I don't even know a tax collector now, but I'm sure they're a lot nicer than they are. Nobody likes this guy because he'll often take things more than the government is asking for. He's a Roman proxy, part of the oppressive system. One day Jesus comes into town and this Zacchaeus just wants to try and see Jesus for himself. So he climbs a tree. And of all the thousands of people there, Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he goes, Hey, you, I'm going to have come over and have dinner with you tonight. And I can imagine a collective gasp from the crowd. That guy, of all the people, you're going, you saw him? You want to spend time with him? Later on, Jesus comes uh, 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 upon a woman who had been sinning. She had been caught in adultery, and, and a crowd of people were around her. And the, the punishment for this type of sin was death. And Jesus, in a miraculous way, stops her execution. And he looks at her, and he says, where have your accusers gone? They're gone. I'm not going to accuse you either. But don't sin anymore. Get back to the image of God. Know your worth and your value. So when Jesus came, he came to redeem us from this sin and to reunite us with God and our true identity. And this would be possible because of what he would do for us when he took his, all of the sin on himself. And he broke its power at the cross. Again, looking at the Gospel of John, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So church family, who are you today? What is the truest thing about you? What, what less true things about you have you made the most true? Maybe it's what you do. Maybe it's what you desire. Maybe it's what you have. There are a lot of things about you that are true. But what is the most true is that you were made in the image of God. And if you don't know that, or you don't feel that to be true, that's okay. This is why Jesus came, to free you. He came to take off the sin that clothes you in the less true things and to ground you in his love, to give you a new identity, a redeemed identity. And this identity isn't something you have to find or make or attain. It's something you receive. So here's our kingdom connection as we look at this truth from Genesis. We ask ourselves, well, what happens when an old man gets born again? What happens when a social outcast, a tax collector, meets Jesus? What happens when a sinner is forgiven? What happens is the identity that they're always meant to have is restored. Listen to this kingdom connection from Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received 
brought about your adoption to sonship. Do you hear that word, received? And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Look at the words used here. There's a, there's a progression, right? There's adoption. There's sons. You can say daughters as well, to be accurate. Children, heirs, co-heirs. There's this redemptive story that you are brought back into. There's this restoration of God's desire for you and your identity. And what this means for you is that when you receive your identity as a child of God, listen to this. What is true for Jesus is true for you. What is true for Jesus is true for you. You are an heir, a co-heir with Christ. You are beloved. God is pleased with you. You are a son and a daughter of Christ. You are righteous and redeemed. Now, now you may think, no, I'm not. Do you know me? <laughs> well, I know myself. I know that I still don't act like a son many times. But that doesn't change who I am. When my kids act in a way that is not part of our, our family values, they don't cease to become my son or my daughter. This is the grace of God. By his blood, you are purchased and you are redeemed and you are adopted and you are loved. And you are in process. (laughs) But when your identity is grounded in the truth of God's word, nothing can take that away from you. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So church family, this is who we are. We are the redeemed people of God who by the grace of God are little by little, step by step, walking out who we were always meant to be. You were not a cosmic coincidence. You were purposefully and wonderfully made. May this be the truest thing about you so that we can look across the aisle and say, brother, sister, welcome to the family. Let's pray together to that end. We'll have the worship team come up and we're going to end with a song that we sang earlier. I think it's a a fitting song to end with. My worth is not in what I own. And Father, as we consider the things that the culture tries to attach to us, is is my desire my identity? Is my profession my identity? Is what I have my identity? Lord, I pray that we would understand the truest thing about us as your sons and daughters. And Lord, I think of that word adoption. That is a purposeful choice on your part toward us to say, come, 
Come into the family. Be my son and daughter. It's, it's not something we choose, but it's something we receive. And so this morning, Lord, if there are somebody here who's not believed you, they don't believe that they were on purpose. <laughs> they think they're an accident. They don't believe that they have value. They just think, hey, everything has value. They minimize the, the reality of you and your love for them, and they maximize the voices of the culture, and so they lose out. They miss it. Lord, I pray today would be the day that they might consider the truth that you love them, that you're on purpose, that you've known them since they were born, that you breathed into them the very life that they have. If that's you this morning, if you're, if you're wrestling with this truth, you want to know more, today's the day I'd ask that you may stick around. We're going to do a little question and answer time after our message. And we're going to pray for, for you. And then let me speak one more to, to those that have said yes to Jesus. You've been a part of the church for a while. You know the lingo and the language. But Satan is working overtime to try and get you to cling to other things. Just like that kid that says, hey, my name's Charlie and I have ADD. You'd say, hey, my name's Samantha and I have and I am and I desire. You've made something prominent that should not be the truest thing about you. Today might be the day that you go back to who God's created you to be, to be the truest thing. So Father, we ask this morning that you would realign us with your heart, that we would see this good news, this good news of the kingdom as being so transformative and so free. Lord, as we sing this last song, may you speak to our hearts as individuals. Lord, realign us with your love, we pray. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.